Hello and welcome to Earliest Years of Life. Hi, I'm Zachary Yassin and for the last 15 years I have worked with Bradford's babies, young children and their families. My name's Kerry Bennett and I'm currently working here at Better Start Bradford but my background is in health visiting and children's nursing. This series looks at how babies' earliest months and years gives them the vital tools to help them through the rest of their life. In this episode, we'll be exploring the link between green space, air quality, rich biodiversity and mental well-being in children. Scientific evidence tells us that environmental factors have a massive influence on our health. So how can we transform the living environment for the youngest and most vulnerable in our society? Our guest today is Shahid Islam, Senior Research Fellow at the ACT Early Programme which focuses on early life changes to improve the health and opportunities for children living here in Bradford. Thanks for joining us, Shahid. Thank you for inviting me and it's a pleasure to be here. So shall we start with what do we actually know about the environment and health? The correlation between good health and a good environment is very strong. That's been established through a number of years worth of research, not only by people here in Bradford, but across the world and certainly across the UK. And the correlation is such that now we need to start thinking about improving population and community health by adjusting the environment. So making the environment conducive to good health. And so the relationship between, for example, pregnancy and good health. So one of the things that we do know is women who live in green spaces and blue spaces, that's water and fields and trees near them, tend to experience much lower levels of depression compared to women who don't. And of course, if women are not depressed during pregnancy, that has a positive impact on the birth weight of the child and also the outcomes for that child because, of course, depression raises all sorts of chemicals in the woman, which is then passed on to the child, which is not good for the child's development. Having things like green spaces available within our areas is a massive boost for good health, especially during pregnancy, both for the mother and for the unborn child. When you said there, Shahid, just about the chemicals, what is it that actually from air pollution, what is it doing to our bodies? The research from Born in Bradford, it's a longitudinal birth cohort study following children who were born in Bradford between the years of 2007 and 2011. Now, we've got enough children in there to be able to track what's going on in certain population groups to be able to say some useful things about different population groups. So one of the things that we have found is children who are born and raised in areas of high levels of pollution, these are things that we measure through various electronic means, tend to be born with lower birth weight. And lower birth weight is an indicator for all sorts of health problems later on in life. So immediately the child may not have any problems, but because by virtue of being underweight, we can tell through lots of other longitudinal research studies which have seen that children who are born underweight later on tend to have all sorts of health problems, mostly cardiovascular problems, but also respiratory problems. So that's all connected to higher levels of air pollution because what we're seeing is those children who are lower birth weight tend to actually be living or born in areas which have higher levels of air pollution. So that's that's one correlation, lower birth weight, poor outcomes as adults. So that's that's quite an important thing. Is it still right? Is the statistic still that there, in Bradford, there's 17 preventable deaths each year that can be linked to air pollution? I don't know about Bradford specifically, but I know 64,000 deaths in the UK are attributable to poor air quality. These are deaths which are attributable to high levels of pollution, in particular, car air pollution. 
So comparing Bradford to other cities in, in the country, we've just said there about statistics for the UK. Here in Bradford, have we got big problems? We have problems in a way which has led, firstly, to us breaching EU guidance of safe air quality, which is why the national government has given a ministerial direction to Bradford amongst 32 other cities to say something needs to be done about this. You are not within safe limits, so you need to do something, which is why some interventions are being planned, for example, the clean air zone. And that's not across all of Bradford. The clean air zone will feature within high levels of air pollution, which is this area, the inner city, and and just going out to the suburbs. Mothers who were living in areas with high levels of air pollution gave birth to children with smaller head circumference sizes. And that is an indicator for lower cognitive development. So air pollution is, is now considered to sort of impact not just birth weight, but so many other facets of our life, including our ability to sort of think and grow and psychologically develop. Tell us just a little bit more then about the, the clean air zone. What will that mean, obviously, for our families here in the, the Better Start Bradford area and the inner city areas? Will they be affected most by this? So the clean air zone, as is planned, will take effect in January 2022. Our neighbouring city, Leeds, also had a clean air zone planned, but that has since, as you may have noticed, has been scrapped. The idea behind the clean air zone is to identify which areas are highly polluted uh, for reasons to do with health, you know, so these are the areas where people will suffer if we don't do something about it. And it will then levy a financial charge on vehicles which are known as high polluters. So if you happen to be a business vehicle, so this is not going to apply to private vehicles. So you and I, for example, wouldn't be affected if we had a vehicle which was considered highly polluting. But a taxi, a bus, a coach, um, a, a business van, a, a wagon, and that kind of vehicle if it wanted to enter into the clean air zone, it would have to pay a financial levy to do that. The idea behind it, this is this is kind of behavior change. The idea behind it is it would make people think about A, not buying those vehicles in the future because they're going to be costly to, to run, but also stopping people with those highly polluting vehicles from entering into this zone. It will have an impact, hopefully a positive impact, because it will mean fewer polluting vehicles are entering into an area which is already highly polluted. And therefore, it will reduce uh, pollution problems and therefore it will improve quality of health. So in addition to the clean air zones, what else can be done in Bradford? I know you've, you know you've talked in other forums about active travel. So I just thought it'd be really useful to hear like what that means and uh, how do we go about introducing the concept of active travel in everyday life? So what, one of the problems that we have found within the inner city area in particular is the car is the easy winner. It's very easy to get about and it's very convenient. I can sort of pack everything into it. But the car is one of the reasons for the high levels of air pollution. And it's also one of the reasons for high levels of obesity because people tend to sort of be less active, burns hardly any calories getting into the car. However, if people shifted from the car to walking the children to school, for example, um, or if they shifted from the car to cycling to work, we would reduce the levels of pollution on the streets because there'd be fewer cars there, but it'd also have a positive impact on people's physical health. So active travel is a, is a one solution to lots of problems. Some of the research conducted by other universities have found that inside the car, you're exposed to between 9 to 12 times more air pollution than outside the car. So if you were inside your car with your children, you know, stuck in traffic, 
about 10 times more air pollution is trapped within there than it is on the side of the road if you were pushing a pushchair or cycling or walking. It's really interesting that I think I heard that on the radio a few months ago and it absolutely blew my mind because you have this notion that if you sat in the car, your window's shut, um, that you're actually protected from the fumes that are outside, but you're not, are you really? There's a lot of miscommunication, misunderstanding around what is safety from air pollution. Active travel makes sense for a number of reasons. One, to protect yourself from being exposed to high levels of toxic fumes, but also it's good for your physical health. For lots of reasons, we're trying to push the idea of active travel. And we as you know, people who work in health and research need to be kind of at the forefront of that and lead by example. It's good for society because it's not only is it good for your levels of reducing levels of obesity and reducing levels of air pollution, but the feel-good factor that comes with riding a bike, you know, and the endomorphins and all the rest of it. So we need to get more people on their bikes and walking. Absolutely. What would you say, you know, people are always got excuses of, of why they can't. And one of the things might be around safety, for example, here in Bradford with, you know, busy roads or just how we see people perhaps drive here in Bradford as other big cities. So what would your argument be against that around sort of safety? That is a challenge. And sometimes the challenge that sometimes people pose is one is safety and the other is the hills. Hilly Bradford. <laughs> and, and I suppose one of the things that has been happening in recognition of, you know, improving air quality and improving the infrastructure for cycling is there are more cycling proficiency courses available. So sometimes people say, well, actually, I really want to cycle, but I'm not sure I can feel safe on the road. There are people out there who will help you with learning those skills and feeling safe and confident on the road. My advice is if you feel safe on the road driving it, there's similar sets of skills, slightly different in how you keep yourself safer on the bike. So wear high visibility jackets, don't go onto the left-hand side of a HGV truck, give them room, give yourself plenty of space, give yourself more time, wear a helmet, of course, and all those sorts of things. And the hills, I would always say, it's not a challenge you've put, but other people have put to me, is the hills get easier. So the, the fitter you get, the easier those hills get. And of course, for certain people of a certain age who haven't cycled and don't feel fit, there are now uh, hybrid electric bikes, which you can charge and you can challenge those hills without too much effort. And Bradford has some beautiful places to go cycling. You're motivating me here, heat. I'm thinking I need to get on my bike more. Absolutely. And I know through our Better Place here, we're doing initiatives working with schools, cornering off streets, making the, the route to schools much more friendly to children, keeping cars away. All those things obviously help and help parents feel more confident with allowing their child to go on their balance bike or their scooter or whatever that may be to school. So do you think we'll see more of that happening in Bradford. Yeah, I, I certainly feel that's the direction we're taking. And, and that's the direction a lot of people are interested in. So not only those things that you've mentioned, which are fantastic, but there are also lots more people attending things like the bike library, which is within the BD5 area. So I, I was initially involved with the bike library with Orange Zip Khan and a few others. And we got a target of, I think it was 250 bikes to sort of fix and repair and give out within one year. And the first year we managed 750. So, and that was without even promoting it. So the interest has really increased. And I think, you know, things like Tour de Yorkshire and Tour de France and all of these other things have made cycling fashionable. And I think the other thing is gone have the days where people used to associate cycling with the poor man's kind of choice of travel. It's more a case of this is actually very good for you. So if you can make your commute out of your cycling, not only do you save money, but you also get fit on the way to work. So I think 
people are a lot more interested in getting active. Where was, where was the interest coming from then? Was it mostly dads, young people, moms, kids? Who were you seeing come to the bike library uh, more? A combination of lots of people, but a big chunk of interest was coming from asylum seekers and refugees. We never did any research on this. and Had we done so, it would have been interesting. But I think it was a lot to do with saving money because don't forget people from asylum seeker and refugee backgrounds are entitled to less money in welfare terms, but not all of them are allowed to work either because, you know, there isn't the permission to work here. So anything that you can save on bus fares and taxis by cycling is good. So that's the other thing that we've got to make big about cycling is it saves you money. I was just thinking there as well about starting early, thinking about our younger generations. And like you said, they're making it, you know, not the, the poor man's choice of travel, but the cool thing to arrive at school on your, your bike or your, your scooter. And that doesn't have to be an expensive bike or scooter at all. But to make that, that children are asking their parents and wanting to do that by, you know, seeing their friends arrive at school in style on their bike. We've got to do that. We've got to role model to our children as well that, that this is the same choice. Do we go in the car? No, let's go on our bike. And that is the choice today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if schools can make more infrastructure for bikes, for example, having places where children can lock their bikes safely and somewhere to store their helmets and, and those kinds of things and have cycle lanes which run to and from the school, I think that would be quite useful. And I also want to stress something to drivers about cyclists, which is the importance of leaving one and a half metre of space when you're overtaking cyclists. Because sometimes, not just sometimes, but oftentimes you'll see many drivers who get too close and the law is one and a half metre. The more we can sort of make road users respect the cyclist on the road, the more cyclists will feel confident to sort of come out onto the road. I think what made me think as well before when we were just talking about that air pollution in cars, which was really interesting, a fascinating fact, and thinking like Zach said about feeling safe with windows closed and aircon on and things, but the importance of turning engines off or parking away from the school setting and being able to, if that's, you know, around the corner, we see all these initiatives about keeping cars away from the fronts of schools and things, but the, the real importance of that, of keeping our schools and our nurseries really clean airspaces. And that's a really important point that not everybody will be able to suddenly get rid of their car. And sometimes car journeys are important. And, you know, some parents have to sort of take their kids to school and then shoot on to work themselves and they've got a journey to make. But it's a case of trying to find ways of reducing any way we can to reduce the level of air pollution, which we might be creating in that process. So if you can get to school, turn your engine off. So the less we can run our engines for no reason, the better it is for our air quality. Talking with Better Place this week really made me think about children sat lower to the ground in buggies very close to engines and exhausts, were being pushed along busy roads or being stood outside schools or nursery, like say pickups. And I really, you know, started to think and visualize, you know, children sat at this, this lower level next to exhausts and thinking, you know, just small steps we could do about that as a parent, you know, moving away from the side of the road. If there is a green verge, or a bush or a hedge or something separating the school from the road or the nursery from the road to go and stand at the other side of it. Do all these little changes that we can do in our everyday life make an impact to our children's health? It's got to be seen as a jigsaw rather than one big piece. And every piece adds to reducing health inequality. And I think everything that we can do sort of protects children. So one of the things that we talked about earlier is being inside a car is more exposing to you in terms of how much air pollution that you're taking in. 
And also the other thing is because you are not driving, you're therefore also not contributing to the air pollution problem. So all of these pieces of the jigsaw add up together to reducing the problem of health inequalities and the problem of air pollution. And we can all make these small steps, taking responsibility ourselves to make that bigger change. If we all as a community did that, taking those small steps could make a huge impact Yeah, yeah, as a collective. Yeah, absolutely. And the first choice is to, you know, look at your distance. And if you can walk it, it's good for you and your children as the first choice. One of the things that somebody really usefully said to me, they said, you're not stuck in traffic. You are the traffic. You're, you're actually stuck in it because you're, you've created it. It's a case of if each person sort of went away from it, they would create space and there'd be less traffic. And there'd be more of us moving. There'd be more of us healthy. There'd be fewer of us as obese as the city is now. So it's a case of every person has got something to contribute to this. I like that. I really do because I suppose there'd be some listening to this or even thinking, well, what is my little bit going to actually achieve if if I stopped driving and started cycling to work? Is that really going to make a big difference in, in the grand scheme of things? So just hearing you say that, like every little bit contributes, every little bit helps. It's a little bit of a nudge in it to, you know, if you're thinking about getting that bike, go out and get it. I think that also leads me to think about getting outdoors more with our children and always there's an excuse of, oh, it's raining, let's jump in the car. But there's something about teaching our children as well from an early age that, as my mum used to say, about rain doesn't melt us, you know, that we, we can get out and we can have the, the correct clothing and get out and feel the rain as we walk to school. And teaching our children, again, that being outdoors in the elements and that isn't something we've got to sort of hide away from. Is yeah, that Does that make sense? It does, because it, it makes me think about how things have changed over the years. So when I was younger, living in the heart of West Bowling, it was really common for us to go out, play in the park, walk down to Bowling Park. And I feel like that somewhat has changed over the years as in we're in the culture of living a life online and kids are spending a lot of times on, you know, gadgets and stuff like that. So, you know, what role does green space, parks, what role does that play in the lives of young children? That's a really good challenge because one of the things that we didn't have to contend with when we were younger is having to find friends online. Because if you needed to, if you needed to have friends, you'd have to go knock on somebody's door and everybody did the same. Nowadays, what might happen is children could link up with people anywhere in the world and have these virtual friends. So the kind of competition between the virtual world and the real world is also affected by bad weather. So if they think, well, actually it's bad weather outside. I can chill out with my friends online. Let's just do that. But of course, then the problem there is their social interaction is limited. They're not physically running around. They're not playing in green spaces. They're actually stuck at home. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we need to sort of make our parks and green spaces more enticing because there's more challenge than there ever was. I grew up around this area in BD5 and uh, the, the area where I grew up, there were three green spaces. They weren't all green, but they were playing spaces. Two of them were very green. One of them was concrete, but that's where we played football. And we all came out after school, after madrasa, and kicked a ball about. And, you know, when we were very young, played take and hide and seek and all those sorts of things. And in that same area, when I go there now, I see everything has been sold off in terms of land and green space, has been fenced off. And those children do not have access to any of that space anymore. And it's no coincidence that in that area, we have very high levels of crime, that's the first thing because, you know, children tend to sort of create mischief when they've got nothing to do with in terms of play. But also we have high levels of things like obesity and poor educational outcomes. 
And these things are all connected. We are a product of the community where we live. It takes a village to raise a child. And, and if the village has sold off all its green spaces and got rid of its places for children to thrive and play for the development of homes and businesses, adults might benefit, but those children are missing out. And I think it's important that we, we recognise that. Absolutely. We've got to look at our priorities around prevention, haven't we? Again, like you say, when we used to play out after school or on weekends to go to the park and, you know, they're not expensive activities either. You know, when we live in a culture of having the latest iPad or iPhone or what games people are playing, but to spend quality time in green spaces, in local parks that don't cost a lot. We've got to really encourage that, haven't we? Because it makes such, such an impact. You're right. And I think given that um, Bowling Park during the first, second and third lockdown has been a bit of a haven for me in terms of the space to walk and really enjoyed my surroundings, etc. It's been lovely to see the investment that's been made into the park. So, you know, like the installations that you see to encourage young children to explore the woodlands and really go for a walk around the whole park because there was only a part of the park that I'd ever explored as a kid. And now as an adult, just recognising and seeing how big that place actually is is something that I think we should probably encourage more of the community to do. Seeing that in pockets across BD3, 4 and 5 has been really encouraging. And I think commissioners and people that are in position to make decisions around urban design, access to green space, that hearing from the community as to the difference that's making. So like you say, you know, it's accessible, it's low cost. It's safe. So it's safe. It's on your doorstep. You know, how do we really make the most of that? They're the kind of things that we need to be keeping at the heart of making these decisions. Just thinking about getting green space into our everyday routines, do you think by not taking the car or the bus and walking more, being more active, do you think we're more inclined to walk through a park, take a different route away from busy roads or to, to stop and play a little bit on the way home? Do you think we can change behaviours that way by taking, again, those small steps for our own families and new routines to improve our health? Yeah, we've done some research on that, in particular about access to parks and green spaces in Bonn in Bradford. And we did that as part of our work for Better Start Bradford. And we looked at what are the barriers and facilitators for families wanting to use parks and green spaces in inner city neighbourhoods where there's high levels of social deprivation. And we found there were lots of reasons. So one of them we talked about earlier, which was the weather. But it was a case of uh, not only the weather, but social influences, not enough people from my community doing this, so therefore it's not the right thing to do. There are also the things that people identified as barriers. For example, things like quad bikers blasting through there because, you know, it's kind of unsafe and very loud and rowdy and, and all of those sorts of things. But also there were problems such as people letting their dogs loose and letting them run. So what we've got to do is we've got to think about why are families not using this space in the same way as perhaps in other parks, like say Roberts Park or Lister Park. And what could our response be to try and reduce those barriers and, and improve those enablers so more people want to use it? Because one of the things that we've got to remember is most people like parks. So our, our challenge is to try and get them to their local park because otherwise what people will do, and this is what we did find, is many people drive to places like Lister Park to enjoy a park. And of course, in that process there, creating more air pollution, and they're not using their local facilities. So we've got to think about how do we turn that table? And, and there's lots of little bits to it. So, you know, having the, the local park ranger now employed through Better Start Bradford, those are the eyes and ears to the ground to work out, you know, where the vandalism has taken place or where the quad bikers have been. You can then have those conversations with those people. 
the behavior change comes about by doing lots of different things. Absolutely. And that's everything what we're trying to do here at, at Better Start. Again, looking at prevention, looking at ways that our communities can support this, like you talked to, to start with about that wider system change and making good habits and practice for our future generations. So I've got a question for you, Shahid. So we've talked a fair bit about green space and what we've got access to, etc. I recognise that that might not be the case for everyone. So, you know, if you've got a little bit of space, be it in your garden, be it on your windowsill, how do we bring that element of the natural world, the outdoors, how do we bring it home? How do we bring it to our environments? There is quite a lot of research around the positive health impact from gardening. The relationship between gardening and good health is really well established over so many decades now. And I think sometimes people will say, well, actually, I'm not green fingered, so I'm not doing this. or I don't have the space. But if you just walk around places like Parkside Road, you'll see very small yards and people have turned them into beautified spaces. So I think it's good both aesthetically, but also physically for your health to sort of get involved in gardening. There has been some research completed in which researchers looked at the health and life experiences of 26,000 people across 26 different countries. And what they found was those people who lived near greenery and nature and had wildlife and biodiversity within their own space tended to have much better health compared to people who didn't. And it was so significant that they attributed the same level of happiness as receiving about a £1,500 pay rise. So having that nature and biodiversity within your own space, which you owned and looked after, kind of gave you the same levels of happiness as having a decent pay rise. And I think that, that in itself sort of shows the importance of having nature on your doorstep, greenery that you can connect with. And especially when you think about some of the things that happen to you as you sow seeds and they turn into something and then you later get to eat them and all the rest of it that goes with, you know, protecting yourself from having to spray preservatives and eating an apple from a tree that you've planted. All of that has got to, by its very nature, be a very positive thing for our health. And I think we need to encourage a lot more of it. One of the reasons why we've got really high levels of obesity is uh, sedentary behaviour, but also the number of takeaways, fast food takeaways, have doubled in the last eight years. So they were already really high to start with, but to then double them, it's kind of already adding to a big problem. We've got to remember that this is people's livelihood. So they're trying to make an income from this. But the problem is it's cheap, calorie dense food, which is being served in poorer areas, which is being served cheaply. So that, that adds to our woes. And so what we need to do is we need to sort of encourage people to sort of um, not only see sedentary behaviour as the reason for obesity, but also the diet that they're What's taking. the responsibility, though, of the council or whoever makes those decisions about who can set up shop and set up another takeaway shop? Like you say, you can drive down some roads, streets in Bradford, and it's just back-to-back takeaways. There's got to be some governance of the number, or is there? I know the rules are quite strict about how far they can place a takeaway from a school. The thing that we have to think about is, why is there such high demand for this food? Because these places are opening because somebody wants it. True. And, and so what we've got to do is we've got to think about how do we create our environment in such a way where that is seen as a treat, not as your main method of living on. And the way we burn our calories is openly available in parks and green spaces on our doorsteps, which are easily accessible for people without having to go past takeaways, which smell delightful and enticing. I think that's the challenge. For us as a society and as a council local authority, that how do we make sure that what we create 
is positive and conducive to good health. Because the key thing here is health inequalities. So if you were in Burnley and Wharfdale, which is about, I think, 12 miles away, and you took a bus from there, by the time you got that bus and got down to here, where we're in BD5 today, you would lose one year of life for every mile in terms of life expectancy by the time you got here. That's quite a lot. Now, the other thing is, you would also lose about 20 years of healthy life expectancy. So in other words, the last 20 years of your life in this area compared to Burnley and Wharfdale tend to be challenged with poor health, tend to be full of all sorts of illnesses and ailments. And that can't be a coincidence. That has to be something to do with how we have created our culture and society in these areas. And that's a combination of lots of things, air pollution, it's also to do with lack of active travel. It's also to do with lack of green spaces where children can play and thrive. It's also to do with the obesogenic environment in which we buy our food. So I think it's a combination of all of these things that we have to think about to create a culture and society which reduces health inequalities, both length of life, but also quality of life. I think just listening to you talk makes me think that how everything is really interconnected very closely. So, you know, we've not really touched on the subject of poverty, but that plays a massive role in what we're talking about in terms of, you know, we've got all these takeaways on our doorsteps. There's, there's reasons why people choose to go there. There's the elements of it being convenient, but there's also the element of it being affordable, buying things like fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, etc. That's That's quite a costly way of living. And knowing what to, to do with those ingredients exactly. as well. You know, are we teaching our children from the early years about what a healthy, balanced diet looks like? Or is it just the norm that we get, like she just said, it's not a treat, it's tea from the takeaway every night. Yeah. You know, that, that that is just routine. That's what happens in our family. Do families know what to do um, yeah. with food and, and who can they ask for that help? That kind of leads quite nicely on to, you know, if people want you to get more information about how do we grow our own vegetables? How do we kind of make our own personal spaces at home more green? What do we do when we've grown some of that veg? How do we actually cook it? Where can they get more information on that? This is a, an ideal time, Zach, to, to plug the new Better Start Bradford app that's just been launched. And obviously all our projects are on the app to be accessed. So programs such as our Henry program. And that really helps families to learn about exercise, about nutrition, about that change that we've talked about that takes a lot of motivation and effort and that consistent approach to be to be able to do that. We can't just change our habits overnight. I wish we could. I wish I could some days. The app is a great place to start with Better Start, looking at what's available and then asking other key professionals that you might see, like your health visitor, your midwife, early years practitioners about some advice or resources and who to get in touch with around help and support. This is the earliest years of life, the Better Start Bradford podcast, and it's time now for the two-minute mic takeover. In every podcast, we give our guests two minutes to share a key message on today's topic for practitioners or decision makers. So Shahid, you have two minutes for your key message. Starting now. So the difference between the health experience of people in affluent areas and the, and the health experience of people in areas where there's social deprivation is quite marked. That can't be coincidental. That has to be down to something. And that something is what we've got to try and find and do something about. And so ACT Early is all about what is that difference that makes the difference. And so our role has to be 
trying to sort of make it more possible to sort of find that difference and make it possible here, whether it's green spaces, whether it's healthy learning, whether it's appropriate income and whether it's making sure that people are engaged and involved in their children's learning, whether it's making them aware of how to cycle safely, all of those sorts of things, they have to be part of our work. And that's what's going to be the difference. That's going to make the difference. And I think public health, NHS, council, everybody has to play a role in that, including schools. And one of the key things that we're thinking about as part of ACT Early is instead of letting people slip off the top of hills and slide down and then rescue them by sending expensive helicopters and and other rescue packages. How about we build fences on top of those hills so people don't fall off in the first place? So that's the metaphor that I often use for ACT Early. And the idea behind that is instead of asking members of the public, communities and population groups to go to our interventions to fix a problem after it's become a problem, how about we design our systems so they prevent the problems in the first place? So if we think about healthy places as just one example, if we make our parks more safe, if we make our parks and green spaces more enticing, if we make it easier for people to cycle so they feel safe on the roads with their families, if we make it easier for parents to sort of take the walking group to school rather than find it easy to drive and park up and drop their kids off, then that's what Act Early is about. It's about looking for how do we make it easier for us to act early so we don't have to have the health problems further down the chain. That's it. Your two minutes are up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, hopefully it's been very useful. Thanks, Shahid. So today's conversation has been a, a great reminder of what an active role the environment plays in our health. Absolutely. And a great reminder that we should all be taking personal responsibility in those small steps to change and make Bradford a better place for us all to live in. Thank you for listening to Earliest Years of Life, the Better Start Bradford podcast. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. To find out more about how we support baby and toddler development across this part of West Yorkshire, head to betterstartbradford.org.uk or download the Better Start Bradford app from the App Store or Google Play. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.